0: Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, a show looking to bring conversation and awareness to the depths of our oceans. We are brought to you by the Connecticut Scuba Academy. My name is John Sherburn and I'm your host. I want to give a big thank you to Will Paulson, who is our technical producer. Today's guest is Brian Helmuth, a professor at Northeastern University, a researcher, and one of the many people involved in the daily search for solutions to mitigate our ecological impact. Uh, How are you doing today, Brian? Good. Thanks for having me here, John. Yeah, I'm hoping butcher what you do too much in that little intro, but um, yeah, okay. yeah bef- you know, before I want to before we get into like the research you're currently doing, I want to talk a little bit about your background. Uh, if you could go through, sure, like your when you went to school, what were you majoring in? What are your degrees um, specifically in?
1: Yeah, so you know, I started diving when I was about 15 years old, and just loved it. And uh, grew up in in landlocked upstate New York, not near an ocean, but you know, we would go to Maine every summer and fell in love with it. So I went to Cornell as an undergrad uh, and did a lot of diving in the Finger Lakes and, and got a, a bachelor's degree there. Actually came to Northeastern, got a master's degree, then went out to Seattle for my doctoral degree, then uh, ended up doing a, a postdoc in Stanford. So I've, I've worked all over the place, um, but you know, kind of started in a landlocked area went to the ocean
0: yeah that's a good range uh finger Lakes. I'm, I'm from rochester new york that's where i am currently right oh, no now, kidding
1: so. i grew up in elmira nice
0: awesome <laughs> um yeah, yeah. you said uh landlocked in new york and i felt uh, a twinge of home so um that's awesome yeah well that's a good uh background and i mean so it's been 30 years since you first went to school how has ouch yeah. how, <laughs> how has it changed i mean you work as a professor now and you've kind of been in school you were in school for a long time and now moved to being an educator how has marine science has changed in the way it's taught um, whether it's climate change or anything at all
1: yeah there for the longest time there was this kind of distinction between what you consider basic science and applied sciences and almost this um, arrogance where uh, applied sciences were, were looked down upon where, you know, if you were a true scientist, you just study knowledge for, for knowledge's sake. And that's this one thing that especially has come about because of climate change, that more and more people are doing cutting-edge applied research, which combines um, really important basic research that moves knowledge forward, but really is doing so in the context of, of trying to solve all of these problems. Um, and so I guess from my perspective, and this is mirrored in my career is that you start seeing things bad happening enough times you can't just sit by idly and not try to do something about
0: it. Totally. Yeah. I think that's with science, like the applicative nature is important. I guess, you know, if you start, if you're in a time, I guess the 20th century where you're not thinking about some of that stuff, it could be the case, but I think it's a, I think we're in a a better spot now in terms of people caring about, you know, not just learning, but, you know, actually trying to do things with that knowledge, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it also means that we work with people outside of academia, too. I mean, you, you heard the phrase inside the ivory tower, where for the longest time, um, professors and, and, and scientists in academia would kind of work in a sheltered environment. And now we partner with state and federal agencies and NGOs and science writers and, and you name it. And so I think we are it's forced us to be a lot more out into the world, which I think is a really good thing.
0: That is uh, again, it's a necessary thing at this point. Yeah, it um, is. It is. Yeah, it's driven by necessity. Yeah, yeah, is the is the climate change thing really emphasized? You'd say throughout, like marine sciences in general, as, as the field.
1: It, it, it is, and even in cases where people aren't specifically looking at climate change, it's not something that you can ignore. So, whether you explicitly consider yourself a climate scientist or not, we're all studying. world in the context of climate change there's just no way around that and so i mean i i didn't deliberately set out to become a climate scientist i just did because i kept studying things like coral reefs that were dying and so now you know i'm kind of i consider myself a an accidental or reluctant climate scientist um, because i didn't i didn't set out to to be here but there's just
0: no way to ignore it yeah only place to be right um yeah, yeah. How, do you, how do you feel about uh, I guess I wasn't going to get into this this early, but we're kind of there. So in terms of policy, do you think that do you think we're doing enough in terms of trying to do uh, fund scientific programs? You've gotten better, but how, how do you feel we're doing in terms of not only federal policy, but just, um, I guess, the ability and the willingness of the you know, government to work with like, scientists to try to solve some of these issues?
1: Yeah, there are almost two levels of that going on. And, and I know we, we think of governments as like this big monolith yeah. where it's all driven by, you know, who's in, in power, especially as president in the US, but there is this fleet of really dedicated people who work in, in federal and state governments who are apolitical and just continue to to chug along addressing these these questions. But then they have to operate within this political framework. And so, you know, during the the Trump administration, um, talking about climate change was not something that was looked upon favorably by the higher ups in the government at all. I mean, there was active climate denial versus now under um, Biden and Harris. It's, It's a major initiative. And so a lot of it is that. Um, we're, we're headed in the right direction with the people who work on it on a day-to-day basis, but it is just bounces from one administration to the next, as far as the priority we place on it,
0: which I'm sure is frustrating is for funding sake and stuff. You're not working oh, under consistency at all. I feel like that'd be better if it's like, oh, we're giving you this much money for the decade and just use it. And we're not going to touch it no matter what that kind of thing feels like it might be smarter use of our resources. Yeah.
1: So it's, it's like
0: the the rate of change in things like funding is
1: pretty fast in some ways where new initiatives will come out, but it's not like we can just ramp up a program under, overnight. Yeah. Um, you know, we have to hire people to work on this. Um, we have to keep those people funded, funded even um, during times when uh, we can't get, get grants. And so uh, I guess it's like any, Endeavor that you have to have this ongoing baseline of people working on it. And so if you shut off the funding even for a year or two, it can kill a program.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I I think it's an issue, like not even just in science. I think that's one of the biggest issues of making major change in this like country. Cause you see, whether it's education or science or health or whatever, it's every four years sometimes or eight years, you have major differences in how we fund things and operate things. And I think that does lead to a lot of disjointed initiatives wasted money honestly more than anything else it's just money that doesn't actually end up doing anything because in a few years it changes hands um yeah yeah difficult thing to navigate but that's you know kind of i guess the nature of the beast here um i want to get into some of the work that you specifically do because you do a lot of really interesting work that i think is we talked about it on our last call it's it's Almost localized is the way I would say in a, in a way where it's not looking at the macro issue, but some of the micro stuff. I, first, I want to talk about Helmuth Lab. You guys do a lot of forecasting predictions, and I'm curious mm-hmm. to know more on, on that. What do you guys actually do to collect data? How is it used? Who is it used by? Um, if you could just talk about, about that for a minute. Sure. So uh, you're right. The way we think about this is that global climate change,
1: as the name implies, is this large scale process over the the surface of the globe. And, you know, we talk about things like an increase in average surface temperature of the planet of of one or two or, or six degrees. And that's really informative of broad scale processes, but it doesn't tell you how that plays out at local scales. So, you know, one thing I, I tell my students is if you think about the difference in average temperature between now and the last ice age, it's about six degrees C, which, is enormous in climatological terms in terms of the, the total amount of heat, but it's how that affects weather that impacts people and um, non-human organisms. So we kind of take two related approaches. The, the first one is we try to measure the, the world from the viewpoint of a non-human organism to figure out how vulnerable they are. And so we do things like we, we design and, and build sensors um, we, we look at vulnerability in terms of kind of the physiology of, of some coastal animals. And in some ways the, the communication that we do is in the same vein because people don't experience climate, they experience weather. And so it's, it's, how do you go from, from climate to weather to the impacts, but then back out again to, you know, what does that mean on a global scale?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So with the forecasting itself, how do you collect the data?
1: So the, the term forecasting is is in some ways like a weather forecast, but it's it's more of an ecological forecast. And so we know that plants and animals all have different sensitivities to things like temperature. And you know, anybody who's ever planted a garden knows that, right? Um, depending on the, the growing zone you live in and the time of year, you're planting different plants. Um, and so there are different levels of vulnerability. There are some species that do really well under Climate change. Mosquitoes do really well under a warmer, wetter world, um, and there are others that, that don't do so well. So, what forecasting does is it, it takes um, weather data, weather being ultimately driven by climate, and then says, um, "Well, what does that mean to how well, uh, say, a, a starfish or a, a mussel or an oyster or a fish is going to do in a coastal zone under those those conditions?" So, we do a kind of a combination of um, lab physiology measurements um, with field work to to see how those changes are are manifesting
0: in coastal areas so I guess then to, to bring it to like you know almost a real example I know one that was really interesting to me uh, is how the animal temperatures in like Oregon and Washington can be warmer than in <laughs> southern California California which is which is really interesting and, and really piqued my interest so if you could talk about some of the work you did on that specific, um, like research line, I think that's a good example of kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, it's it's wild how biased a view humans have of our world. I mean, I guess it shouldn't be too
1: surprising. You know, we often have this very anthropocentric view of ourselves as somehow being um, exceptional or, or different from nature, rather than than part of it. But um, how we experience the world is is totally different than the vast majority of, of plants and animals out there. So the the best analogy I, I, I give is, is that if you think of, um, an insect that can see an ultraviolet and it's looking at a, a, flower in the ultraviolet spectrum, there are runways and bullseyes and all these patterns that are, um, guiding the, um, the insect into the, the flower, our eyes are receiving the same information. We just don't have the capability of, um, converting that into um something that that we can respond to so we we we're insensitive to to uv when we think about weather we think about air temperatures the the main driver of how comfortable we're going to be outside and sometimes we'll add in wind so we talk about wind chill so wind uh chill basically means if you were standing in air without wind this would be the equivalent Temperature that you would experience. It turns out that for the vast majority of plants and animals on the the planet, they're they're ectotherms. They don't have internal heat sources, so their body temperatures are changing all over the place. And it's the same thing if you go out on a really hot sunny day and put your hand on the pavement. Um, It could be a lot hotter than the air temperature because it's the sun that's heating the surface, and then that surface is what heats the air temperature. It's the same thing for plants and animals that are are very close to the ground. So a muscle can be 15, 20 degrees hotter than air temperature sometimes, um, just because of the interaction of sun hitting its surface with all those other weather patterns.
0: And this is exactly what you study. but what's the impact on that over time? I mean, I know it's, I'm sure that's the, that's all the work you do, but if you could hypothesize, if you've come up with anything, like what is the impact of that on some of those species in terms of, you know, uh, birthing rates and in terms of lifespan and stuff like that?
1: Yeah. So, so first of all, that means that in a lot of cases, um, these organisms are a lot closer to their lethal limits than we would ever guess based on air temperature. So like there's a lot of physiological work that shows that muscles do fine up to of 40 degrees centigrade. And then after that, they, they start dying. And so you might say, well, as long as air temperature doesn't get above 40, then they're, they're fine. Well, if you take the viewpoint of that animal, even if air temperature is say 30, that animal may be really close to dying. And so it shows that there are all these um, limits that may um, be operating that, we're, that are invisible to us. The other thing is where you start to look for that. So if it's not just air temperature, um, that means that there are these trouble spots that can emerge in areas that we think are are safe. So the example you raised about Washington, Oregon, it just happens on the West Coast of the US that in summer, all the low tides happen in the middle of the day in the Northwest and in places like Southern California, they're happening in the middle of the night. So even though you get really hot air temperatures in parts of Southern California, the animals are just never exposed. Um, But in Oregon, they're exposed to sun. And so you see that where uh, you'll get die-offs and and stress happening way north um, in the the species range, just because of that weirdness of how they experience the world.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I think that's the uh, the biggest issue with climate change in terms of, on all sides of the issue is that it's very it's compound you know it doesn't exist it's not two different factors impacting things it's a thousand and so uh that the end result of of climate change is impossible to note and i think that's why what the work you're doing is so interesting because it's taking into account some of those factors you may not think about in most people whether they're regular folks like me or even at like a governmental level if they're not involved directly might not think about it like that you know yeah and and it doesn't mean that it's all
1: unknowable. It just means that there are some things that we we don't understand, and and it's it's in a lot of cases the sad thing is it's it's not whether it's good or bad, is how bad it's going to be. Yeah. Um, so you know you think of the the IPCC predictions of of the changes we expect to see, and every time a, a prediction comes out, the next time around it's worse than was predicted the first time. Um, and so it, it it makes it tricky to talk about because uh, we recognize that. Impacts of climate change are highly variable across the planet, which means that people are experiencing it in really different ways. Um, but overall, it's having pretty negative impacts.
0: It's tough. I, I, I mean, even just disheartening at the, at this juncture. I guess there's two things I want to talk about here. And the in the first is that that concept of you see stuff like you know soil erosion, mass mass extinction, and it, yeah. and it can feel like it's almost uh, too late or out of the average person's hands. Um, yeah. What would you say for average folks to consider in terms of, I mean, everyone always says it like the big corporations are the big polluters and the big issues. What would you say to the average person and not only what they can do, but how they can view some of these issues to maybe not make it seem so hopeless?
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of times we talk about climate change, like it is a totally separate thing. And the way I think two things to to think about. Um, The first is that uh, when we think about, for example, the greenhouse effect, we're greatly amplifying what would otherwise be a natural process. So without the greenhouse effect, we wouldn't have liquid water on the planet. We wouldn't be alive. And so it's not like we're creating a whole new mechanism. The the greenhouse effect has always been here. Um, It's that we're ramping it up through through our activities. Um, The other piece is that... The way the u.s military views climate change is a threat multiplier and i think that's a really smart way to look at it because it's not that um climate change happens independent of of everything else we're we're doing it makes bad things that much worse and so even though tackling things like carbon emissions is is really difficult and it involves these, these international treaties that doesn't mean that the actions in the local scale don't have an impact. So, you know, for example, if you protect an area from over-harvesting or reduce fertilizer runoff or anything else on a local scale, you're creating resilience to climate change as well. Um, so anything we do, even if it's not related to changing climate can help um, protect ecosystems and, and ultimately us.
0: I think it's, it's one of those things too, as well, as well as where, if more people and, and even if we get to a point where most people are thinking actively about this regardless of the impact it will in the future snowball into everyone caring which will affect stuff like government levels and and we've seen with a lot of different issues recently that you know companies will to a point listen if there's enough public interest or outcry or whatever um, yeah
1: i think i think corporate responsibility is is really um becoming more and more um forefronted and, and, I, and I find
0: that really um, encouraging you see like ecological uh, business and and the future of sustainable business is a huge growing sector in terms I think it's one of the fastest growing yeah. sectors in terms of business majors and stuff a lot of people are getting certified and, and and studying the idea of having sustainable business I think that's the people will usually argue and, and sometimes this is uh, political or sometimes it's apolitical but how much of the conservation is worth drowning our economy. And I, I agree with that or not. That's a very fair point of how, how to navigate not bankrupting the country, but also saving the world from ecological disaster. And so I think having people in the business and environmental world work together or conjoin is, is huge. And
1: I think the other important piece of that is the the climate justice angle as well. Right. And so um, regulations that will um, reduce carbon emissions, for example, but you don't do so being cognizant of, of how it's going to differentially affect people, that's not sustainable. I mean, the, the solutions have to be equitable. Um, we, we have to look at this from a systems perspective. I mean, it has to to be very forward looking. And, and I think that's the only way it, we're going to do it. I mean, if we have an us versus them mentality, uh, it's, it's never going to work. And so I think building allies as much as you can is, is the way to go. Now, you know, that doesn't mean that every sure. single business is going to be responsible and that those who refuse to be responsible shouldn't be taken down, but there are an awful lot of, of really forward-thinking um, businesses and, and industries that uh, I think are great partners.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I want to move on here, but I think what you said was is wonderful and you hit the nail on the head with, there's not a them, yeah. it's all us, you know, it's just, there, there's, there are different people's opinions within it, but it is all us. So we can't, you can't take a sector or a section of people and say, you know, we don't need them. Cause we do, we do. Yeah. I mean, it, it, at least it should be that way
1: now, you know, Yeah, ideally, it, I, I ideally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, cause th- there are people who are actively trying to, to push against this for, you know, what I think is, is, is greed. Um, and so, you know, if, if they're not going to get on board, then, um, I I think they, they do need to be, um, pushed out of the way, but I would at least like to think there are a lot more allies
0: out there than, than enemies. I agree. Uh, and so in moving forward into some of the other stuff that you're involved with, um, we talked a lot about. You know, kind of having science and federal and stuff work together, and and you're a part of the National Sea Grant Advisory Board, which I, I believe works with the government as well as you know, it's obviously granting and stuff. Talk about your your chair, I believe of it, or the chair of it. So if you could talk about your position there, and then what work do you guys do there as a whole, I think that would be wonderful.
1: Yeah, the the Sea the Grant people for uh, program for people who don't know is this just amazing program that's now over 50 years old, um, and it's it's built on kind of the same idea as as land grant where it the program works um collaboratively with local communities to solve problems using cutting-edge science and so uh for for 50 years the sea grant program has been embedded in coastal communities around the the u.s um to to problem solve and uh it is um run by at the, the programmatic level, um, but then there's also a national office. And it's unusual in that there's a federal advisory committee um, that's the advisory board that that you, you mentioned, which I'm the chair um, and it is mandated by Congress. And so what's unusual is that I'm actually a special federal government employee a couple weeks out of the, the year. And then um, we report every other year to Congress and to the Secretary of Commerce that have know about um, Sea Grant and, and how it's helping to address the, the nation's challenges in, in coastal zones. I mean, it's been a fantastic experience. I, I love working with the, the people in the Sea Grant program.
0: Yeah, it's, it seems like uh, necessary and interesting work. So I'm really happy that you're involved with it. And it was kind of cool to learn a little bit about, I don't know. I mean, I was just looking. I mean, there's, you guys make thousands of jobs and millions and millions of dollars into the economy. And like the impact is huge. Oh yeah, it's uh, the the return on investment is something like eight to one. It, it is absolutely amazing. So um, even
1: though the the name has grant in it, it's not uh, a way to funnel money from the the federal government um, into to communities at a local scale. It's how do you invest in ways collaboratively, and a big part of that is it's matched, and so it's matched by state governments. It's it's um works in collaboration with business and industry and so um if you add up the total benefits uh i need to double check the statistic but it's somewhere in the order of eight to one which is yeah i mean that's a wonderful statistic it's amazing
0: yeah no that's crazy and uh i wasn't aware of that eight to one is is huge and i think a lot of times with grants and federal programs people get scared about it's a waste of money or it's uh it's an issue but that's not usually the case uh or or at least in a situation like this even just the um, the snowball effect into economy and what, what it leads businesses to invest in and, and changes and that kind of stuff is, is huge.
1: Yeah. And and back to what we were saying at the, the beginning of the call here in terms of the, the up and down of, of funding, um, it's a continuous engagement. And so anybody who works with communities knows that you can't get anywhere unless you establish trust. And establishing trust means that you spend the time getting to know those people. And so Um, this program is in a unique position that has a 50 year history of working in the community. So they know who to go to. I mean, when, um, COVID hit, for example, it really impacted a lot of aquaculture facilities, um, because they had no market. And so that the program knew who to talk to, and they helped uh, a lot of those businesses sell direct to consumer. And so it kept some businesses afloat because they, they knew what the problem was and who to talk to. Um, so Yeah. You can tell
0: I'm a huge fan of of Sea Grant. Yeah, I'm glad I brought it up as it was uh, one of the things that I didn't I, I hadn't really seen. and then as we talked more, I was like, really interested in it, and I, I did some research. Um, and we, we talked about a few other things too. One thing I wanted to talk about, and this is actually really funny. Um, yeah. You sent me one of the articles was on the underwater Cypress forest that was found recently. And I remember reading that New York times article when it came out and I've heard about it a few times and I didn't know that you were, <laughs> uh, I was reading back and like, I recognize this article. And then I saw you come up and it made me laugh. Um, so talk to me about what you did there, what you saw, what you studied, what um, was your involvement and just to people that don't know about it at all, talk, talk about on that as well.
1: Yeah, I, I love that that project. So this is, is one that we're doing um, with a, a group at Northeastern called the Ocean Genome Legacy. And so the, the head of that is a guy named Dan Distel. And um, they collect DNA from marine organisms around the world, sequence it, and then share it for free with anybody um, um, who, who will use it for non-commercial purposes. And so one of the things they do is, is bioprospecting, trying to figure out what medicines for people could you make Um, given um, the the really, in some ways, bizarre challenges that that marine organisms face. Um, But then they're also really important in uh, documenting patterns of of biodiversity, too. So um, this is a grant that was funded by NOAA Office of Exploration, where um, during ice ages, when all that water is locked in um, land-bound glaciers, the sea levels drop a lot. And so 60,000 years ago, um, sea levels were were quite a bit lower than they are now. And so on what's now the coast of of Alabama and the Florida panhandle, there were cypress forests, um, a lot like you'd see in the the Carolinas today, um, as the glaciers melted and, um, the ice age subsided that the sea levels rose again. So eventually that cypress forest got drowned and the, the trees died until, um, They got buried. And and so the site now is about 10 miles off of the the coast um, because the the coast is now migrating inland. And it just stayed locked away for 60,000, 50 to 60,000 years. Hurricane Ivan came through, uncovered this thing. And um, a fisher and a a underwater photographer, filmmaker named Ben Rains went out and discovered this thing um, after the hurricane and uh, we're looking for scientists to work on it. And so um, our team was, was among the, the first to go down and study this. And so you dive down there and you can swim along ancient stream beds that are 60,000 years old. You, you reach in um, to a, a bank and find roots from a cypress tree that if you bring the wood up, it, it looks like it was cut yesterday. There's still sap in it. We, we kept the location of it secret because there were people who wanted to commercially harvest it, but thankfully now there are efforts underway to, to protect it. But what we were looking for was, you know, what is living on um, this wood? Um, there are a lot of wood boring organisms, but there's often not a big concentration of wood. And so the ocean genome legacy was looking at the the bacteria and gills of shipworms that, that live in these things uh, because it's such a weird environment that, that leads to the creation of bizarre chemicals that, that people wouldn't have thought of. And so when my group was, was, um, specifically involved in was trying to map this out. Um, unfortunately when we went down there, uh, the visibility was so bad, it was like diving in chocolate milk. And so we're on the bottom, you can feel your way around and, and literally only see about two feet in front of your face. So we were able to do some basic mapping and bring up some samples, but we weren't be able, weren't able to do all the photography. So we're hoping to go back this August and and do it right this time when with luck, the, the visibility would be a lot uh, greater, but yeah, it was, it was really uh, a great experience to be swimming along and knowing that you're following an ancient stream channel that that's, you know, 50,000 years old
0: almost like a spooky experience where it's almost as old as human homo sapiens are. Like that's been around for as long as we've been around. So that's very, yeah. Cool.
1: Yeah. You think about the human timeline, what humans were doing 50, 60,000 years ago. It, it's
0: yeah. That's <laughs> a, a rare experience. Uh, that's, that's awesome for you. So, you. so you're going back in August and it would, it'll be clear just time of year wise, maybe it'll be more settled or whatever for you. We hope so. Yeah. I mean, we, we've been working closely with Dolphin uh, Dauphin Island sea lab, um, which is
1: our, our base of operations. And um, they've been fantastic in, in helping us. And they've actually, they've done a lot of diving since then. Uh, a guy named Grant Lockridge has, has done a lot
0: of work with us. So he's, he's got some photographs So we're really hoping to get down there again. So I want to I move a bit into, we talked about climate change a bit before. I want to talk about some public perception stuff um, and just how we can navigate the future kind of as we wrap up the hour here. Um, so- You've been talking – I saw like a radio clip from like 2002 where you were saying that climate change is, is a fact and not a viewpoint. And I think that's apt and I think that's become more understandable. Most people I think at this point are, are kind of climate change is happening. There's the camp of uh, doesn't matter. But I think most people are aware that climate change is a thing. What, what do you think fueled the anti-climate change movement? How, how do you think it's faring today? Do you think um, – what can you say to anyone who, who, who's doubting uh, – not not its validity of climate change but doubting the the position
1: yeah that that is such a an important and and difficult question i mean the the hard thing is that this wasn't political even in the the near past i mean there were there were a lot of republican efforts and, and there still are on on how to confront this um john mccain for example was was really active in this area and so the debate centered around what you do about it, not whether it's happening or not. And and that really is where there is legitimate debate about how much do you rely on regulation versus how much do you rely on um, free market strategies? Um, There's a a fantastic group called Republican that's led by um, former Congressman uh, Bob Inglis, who looks at um, free market strategies that are consistent with conservative Republican ideas um, on on how to solve this. But as it has become increasingly political like everything else over the last um, four years, um, there are now some groups of people that no matter what you say, because of their ideology, they're just not going to believe that it's it's happening. Um, And so I think like so many things, it is finding allies and starting with what people care about. So I mentioned before, that you know, the U.S. military, the Department of Defense takes climate change really seriously uh, because it, it can lead to increased civil unrest and can lead to to loss of, of lives. Uh, I, I, my understanding is that one of the, the number one sources of mortality for um, U.S. service members is, is protecting fuel convoys. So the DOD has been really proactive about this. Um, the faith community has been really active um, from the creation care viewpoint. Um, insurance industry cares about it because they're gonna lose money. And so it's, I think it's, it's thinking about climate change, not just from one way, but um, you know, how does it impact all of us? I mean, the, the evidence is so clear now that it's happening um, that you, you pretty much have to actively deny science and actively deny reality not to believe in it anymore. But that said, you know there are ways to find solutions where you don't have to be confrontational and say, I want you to write on paper that you believe in climate change. Um, you can have discussions about protecting coastlines and about um, you know, how do we um, uh, work to increase human health under um, heat waves. Um, where it's a lot of it is, you know, not blaming anybody or or not letting them save face, but just how do we work towards solutions, I think is always the way to talk about it.
0: Yeah. I think at this point, it's about uniting people under that common, those commonalities, as opposed to highlighting a difference or or a different uh, opinion or view. It's, I like that there are allies everywhere and in every sector or section or, or subgroup of people, there are people that are on the right side of things and there are people that are on the wrong side, about every issue, and so it's about kind of finding common ground and getting more people to say, "Hey, we need to work towards a solution and, and try to yeah. figure out what solution's best." What What do you? And this is this is gonna be a, this is be a hard one for you. What What do you think the, <laughs> the um largest threat we pose is? There's a lot of fact, there's a lot of things humans do in different um areas that is that is uh you know, negative for the environment. Um, what do you think? Which one is the largest threat from what you've seen? The largest threat is I- ignoring um, scientific evidence, and, and I think that
1: you know we've seen that with COVID too, right? Um, I mean, ultimately it, it boils down to um, you know every time you get on an airplane, you're trusting that an expert knew how to build that, and you're trusting that the pilot knows how to fly it. And we don't all have a personal opinion about how airfoils work and the Bernoulli equations of of what makes a plane fly. Um, at some level, we pay these people to do a service. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist, I'm getting paid to to do this. And I've spent my whole life studying it. And there are a whole bunch of people like me. And so I think it's the biggest threat, ultimately, is that we've gotten to this point where somebody who Googles something and comes up with a web page that um, says what they want to hear that we don't act on that. So I, I, I'm not sure if that's what you're you're asking. But I mean, I think it's there's no single threat as far as kind of the physics of climate change. obviously, reducing greenhouse gas emissions is is really critical. But we already have enough information to to act. I mean, we don't need new science to know that climate change is happening. It, it really comes down to, to willpower and how you get people in office who are
0: willing to to work on that, yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and I, I want to uh, pull back a bit um, uh, into. On Thursday, last Thursday, had a really good conversation on photography and conservation. And I think it's, oh, yeah. it's this yeah. under... Uh, a lot of people don't think about it or connect it, how much uh, filmography and photography go into wildlife and into conservation efforts. And when you look at anything, all, all of the Cousteau's, any any divers, anything, yeah. it's it's not just about getting samples, it's about documentation. So I, I want to talk about how you feel about some of that stuff, the photography aspect and and the impact that has on the population's view of our, our beautiful world.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I and a lot of marine biologists of my generation are in this field largely because of Jacques Cousteau. Um, you know, we we fell in love with the ocean and, and like we we're talking about, I mean, I grew up in in upstate New York where I only got to go to the ocean once a year, but yet somehow fell in love with it. And it was because of those amazing photographs and and movies that uh, Cousteau's team made, and that wasn't because they were throwing a bunch of data at me when I was a kid. It was because of the the imagery and the storytelling and the feeling like I was part of that and that the ocean mattered to me. And uh, I you know I, I work with underwater photographer Keith Ellenbogen. Um, I work with Jacques Cousteau's grandson Fabien Cousteau. And it's all about changing hearts and minds. And as a scientist, um, I know how to think about data. I can take a graph and see what that means to somebody's uh, life, but that's only because I've been immersed in it. So um, I'm really grateful that there are people out there who have the skill sets, either as communicators through storytelling or through art and, and photography that can really convey those emotions to people who otherwise may not ever have a chance to have first hand experience with, you know, something like a right whale.
0: Yeah. And I, I agree. I, I mean, I personally um, fell in love with nature via all the, I, I guess it's not the same thing in any capacity, but, david attenborough and all the blue oh, earth yeah. and blue planet and all planet earth and all stuff I- i've watched absolutely every single bbc oh, me too. documentary a, that's all i do and and, and, and i think yeah. it's it's kind of a modern equivalent of of someone who really oh, just brought is. absolutely yeah he just brought a lot of love to um modern audiences and, and honestly i think how how good we have now for cameras and video and stuff there are so many great there's the opportunity for more people to see it and feel it than ever before. And I, I think it's I think it's absolutely wonderful. I mean, it's got me upset. I'm uh, right now just going through all my favorite shots. Um <laughs> But I think it's I think it's great to relate those two things. And I, I think that's a great we were talking about, you know, yeah. government working with science, but I think also having entertainment work with science is huge. Oh yeah. Um, yeah.
1: And and um I, I'm I'm a huge David Attenborough um uh, He's one of my heroes. Um what is um, very humbling to me is is having worked with people like Keith to recognize how much work goes into getting one single shot. I mean, I don't know if you've ever watched the the extras in any of the Attenborough um, videos, I mean, they'll, they'll put a team of videographers on a remote island for six months just to get like three minutes of, of film. And so it, it, those people are such skilled artists um, in, in what they, they do. And you know, I've learned with Keith, for example. He and I can can look at exactly the same thing. If I take a picture, if, if he takes a picture, it's it's amazing um, because he's just got this amazing ability to to communicate that through the lens of the camera.
0: Yeah, it's art. I think it's wonderful. My a a, per, a my one of my favorite stories behind the scenes was they captured um, Siberian white Bengal tiger in Russia, and and they, there's almost no footage of that yeah. at all. There's not a lot. And they put a guy, I think he was by himself for uh, nine months in a little box. And he lived in a little house for months on this, this, like the haunt of a, of, of, of a single tiger. And they got, and it was one of those things you think about that. And the average person, I mean, I'm really into photography and video media, all that kind of stuff, but the average person doesn't think twice about a shot like that. And it seems almost crazy to put someone there, but then the result is that is the best and the most footage we've ever got of that animal ever. Yeah. Without any competition, and that's a beautiful thing. That now people who never would have known about its existence or, or what it does now see what its life is like and see how how an animal like that operates. And if you take that macro into say the ocean and how it works, it makes it not this scary body of water, but it makes it a uh, a place where so much so much of our life lives, so much our life comes from, so much of us rely on. Yeah, and
1: and a lot of this that I've I've learned is is not you know you just run into a place you snap a photo when you you leave, there's so much groundwork that goes into getting to know the the animals and and the habitat. Um, Keith has told me stories about um, watching the behavior of of diving birds for for days before he even tries to get a a single shot. Um, And, uh, you know, some of it, I I, I guess, is being in the right place at the right time. And in order to do that, you just have to be in the water a a lot. Mm -hmm. But I know, um, one of the things I've gotten to do is I've gotten to live underwater for, um, 10 days at a, at a time, um, as a saturation diver and you get a lot of work done, but one of the coolest things is just being able to take a breath and just watch, um, you know, either inside the habitat, you're, you're looking out at, at the animals, which are, have gotten acclimatized to you. So they're behaving normally, or just out on the reef, um, just being able to sit there for 10 minutes. Um, usually, you know, we're, we're rushing in to do work and then rushing out and we don't get to know um any of the uh, the animals, but just being
0: able to watch is is huge there's a beauty to it. This is funny because i had uh, this is kind of what I wanted to close on, and you led me to it perfectly oh, nice. so thank you um uh Fabian Cousteau has been working really hard to get Proteus off the ground, yeah, which would be like the largest underwater research and living community ever um and you sent me an article and i I've been looking into it um and so if you want to talk about that project for a minute, but what I'm a- what I'm going to ask you is, if you had the opportunity to live on that International Space Station of the Sea, what would you ideally want to work on or study if you could really just spend a few months studying anything underwater like that? What would you want to focus on? <laughs>
1: right. Oh, man, that's that's a tough one. I mean...
0: Yeah, I thought it would be a fun and difficult final, final place to get to.
1: Yeah, I mean... Uh-
0: Boy, that last one is
1: is a is a tough one because I'd probably have a, a list as long as my arm of the things I'd like to to do. Um, so for for anybody listening to this who who doesn't know, um, uh, one of the the legacies of Jacques Cousteau is, is he started building underwater habitats where where people would live in the the bottom of the ocean. And it was going hand in hand with the space race. And growing up in the the 70s, I, I think at that point we all thought by this time we'd all be living underwater in underwater cities. And in a lot of ways, um, similar to what we saw with um, exploration of, of space, public interest went away. So the time is is really right right now, given the challenges of, of climate change and everything else, that we need another grand vision of that. And so Proteus is intended to be equivalent to the International Space Station on the the bottom of the ocean, um, where uh, scientists and and, uh, other aquanauts can live down there for a a month at a time. And so um, the scientific goals of Proteus are to address challenges that society faces. And so it's how do you come up with sustainable ways of growing food? How do you assess the impacts of, of climate change? Um, but honestly, I mean, I think a lot of it is is the opportunity to, to get to be part of a reef is amazing, right? So, you know, I'm sure you did this too, growing up in upstate New York, every afternoon as a kid, I'd wander through the woods and um, would, just be part of it. And, you know, it, we can do that for short periods of time when we're scuba diving you, know, you can go down for half an hour and come back again. But when you're living in the bottom, you can spend eight hours on the bottom getting to know everything around you. And so um, if I have the opportunity to, to live in that, I, you know, I I've, I've already got a, a lot of experiments I'd like to, to do with um, uh, looking at, um, you know, how do we, we, figure out the vulnerability of corals to try to protect them. You know, how do we um, find ways of uh, growing food that is sustainable without harming um, any wildlife through through effluence or anything. So yeah, I'm I'm hopeful at some some point I'll get to go down on that.
0: I hope for you that you do. It yeah. seems an absolutely wonderful experience. Um so Brian, thank you so much for coming on yeah, today. This was fun. Uh, Thanks. Yeah. If you ever want to come back and go in depth on a specific thing at all, any research you're doing, I'd love to have you back. This was a great conversation. You got a lot of interesting work. So, um, yeah, keep us updated. If you want to uh, uh, link anything or talk on whether it's your social media platforms or any work you're doing, you want people to see, feel free to do that now before we go.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm on, um, Twitter is at Aquanaut, um, 1967. Um, if you want to follow there, um, I won't read out the whole URL, but if you just Google Northeastern and Helmuth lab, that'll, that'll <laughs> pop up. Um, but yeah, I'd love to come back and talk to you more thanks for
0: the opportunity. Awesome. We'll definitely set something up sometime. Uh, thank you for your time today. And, um, all right. Thanks yeah. so much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. If you like what you saw, you can find us on Twitter at Blue Earth Podcast or Blue Earth Pod. You can always reach out to us in our email basket at BlueEarthPod at gmail.com. If you have questions, comments, someone you want to have us have on, contact link, anything like that. Um, And we post every single week. So until next week, I want to say thank you, as always, for listening. And remember that anyone can get involved and everybody has an obligation to do right by not only our oceans, but our world. Thank you.